Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. Wow, I feel hungover. Perhaps controversial to start a sermon. There, there's no drinking involved in this hangover. Just so, so, so much happening this week. So much of you guys were a part of it. And I just want to say we are working towards being a community of micro churches. Oh my gosh, how many times have we said it and just been like, what does that mean? But this week, I really saw it. And it was so sweet from Alyssa's house on Monday night. She had the third through fifth grade girls over and threw them the party of their dreams. And it was so sweet. Yeah, there it is. Night swimming on Tuesday, whose idea was that? So dumb, but really fun. And then a lot of Wonder School work was done this week. So many of you guys were a part of that. And I just wanna say thank you so much and also, please make sure your tetanus shots are up to date because what happened with that carpet on Friday was not safe. So, uh, yeah, get that checked out. And then the fun run was yesterday, which you've been hearing about for months. And it was really fun to see the community all together. And it, it raised money, which was great, but also it was just really sweet to see what God's doing on that corner and with us as a church. So I wanna celebrate you and say you guys are, I don't, like Redemption Hill is becoming this really fun family. And I know that it's been a family for a long time, but it doesn't it seem like there's something sweet happening in these last few seasons, cause it feels like it to me. So um, I was actually thinking a lot about how much I love you guys this week when I was reading through First John again because John uses so much affectionate language in his letters and it makes me feel better because I know I'm such a weirdo, how I talk to you and how I talk to your kids and how much I tell you I love you, but John does it too. So it's biblical. And you're wrong. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Uh, we're going to start in First John today, 2.28 through 3.10. But I wanted to tell you, too, that as I was reading it this week, I was a little annoyed because <laughs> the language of these letters is so repetitive and a little unclear sometimes. First John, I was reading it and just feeling like we've he's already used these phrases so many times and it, it doesn't feel practical. He's not... He's not creating an argument. There's no flow to it. Um, I read one commentator that compared the way that John writes to like a symphony. So there's like themes and then there's an arc of a movement through the themes, but it really doesn't have like a through line. So I'm going to give you a tool that I use when I'm working in God's word and just feeling like bored 
or apathetic towards what I'm reading. You know, you're just like essentially skimming it because if you read the word righteousness one more time, you're going to scream. <laughs> so a tool that I've been doing a long time is when I really don't feel like reading what I'm reading or I, I'm, I've just like lost a sense of direction as I work through it is I ask God to surprise me with something. Surprise is a very powerful emotion that we have as humans. Surprise makes us stop and pay attention. It's one reason like, like that sense of surprise turns your attention, right? So I will just stop and say like, so I'll just be really honest with God and say that I cannot get through this. Please surprise me with something. Bold some words for me. Underline some words for me. Like show me what you have for me here. So I'm going to ask you to do that as I read this. Listen, e even for a word that brings some sense of surprise to you. Okay, some curiosity. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we're God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we're already God's children, but he hasn't shown us yet what we'll be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we'll be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectations will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there's no sin in him. And anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they're righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they're children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil because anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Okay, this is rhetorical. But think about anything that might have surprised you. A word or a phrase, something you're sick of hearing, but it's sticking out to you still. You got it? I hope it's the same as mine, because my sermon's about my stuff. <laughs> the first thing that stuck out to me, a question that I came to was, can I actually stop sinning? John says, if we're children of God, we won't sin anymore. And I immediately was like, rot row. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so then I was wondering, well, what does it really mean to be righteous? Have I been thinking about that incorrectly? Do I have some sort of religiosity attached to that word that's made it um, impossible? Because the Bible says over and over again, we will be righteous as Christ is righteous, but 
I would never call myself righteous. And then this got weird. <clears throat> if I sin, do I really belong to the devil? Or is it only if I keep on sinning? Can parts of me belong to the devil, but not the whole part of me? Is that what progressive sanctification means? Is our salvation something that keeps happening to us? Are we saved once and then we stop sinning? Or are we saved once and then we learn how to not sin? Some of that depends on what church you're sitting in this Sunday, but you're sitting in church with us. So we're going to talk about the way that we interpret these verses and, and, and really zoom out. If you notice what my question, who are my questions about? Me. <laughs> I read this and immediately turned my eyes towards myself, which is fair. The Bible is meant to read us. When we read the Bible, it's reading us, and it's going to show us things about us that are surprising and bring to our attention. But there's also so much more happening here. These are not, this isn't like a letter to Jesse. It's not a letter to you. This is a letter to the whole world. So here's a question that we're going to talk about today. If I truly believe, that I'm already in eternal life, in Jesus, how does that look right now? Specifically, what would that change about how I make decisions, how I approach my life, and how I interact with others? I stole a, oh no, sin. I stole a book from Malia this week. What a start, uh, called The Good and Beautiful and Kind, and it had this uh, definition of sin. Will you put that up for me? The book is by, is it Velodos, Rich Velodos? How do you say his last name? Anyways, you guys can read, I hope. Uh, and he defines sin as, at its core, sin is failure to love. And the argument that he makes for this is because when Jesus comes and, and turns the law on its head and says, the greatest command that I give you is this, to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself, then the argument would follow that the greatest sin, the definition of sin, would be to not do that which is to not love. And we would tend to think of sin as breaking God's law not doing what's right. Like righteousness to me is attached to law. Am I doing what's right? That would make me righteous. But Jesus reframed sin and the law in a way that turns our old definitions on their heads. Um, Augustine talks about sin with this Latin phrase, incurvitas, in se. Have you guys ever heard that? Like, it's what I was describing that I was doing with those verses, which is to turn inward. But we we keep turning inward until we become curved in upon ourselves. And this is essentially the shape of the world around us. The shape of power. The shape of lust. The shape of lying and stealing. It is a curving inward where the only thing that we now see is ourselves. And so the only thing that I can see is myself, the only thing that I'm thinking about is myself, and the only thing that I can trust is myself. I can't trust the world around me, so I've got to grab power. 
I can't trust God to provide, so I've got to take what I want and what I need. I certainly cannot trust you. So I've got to keep my guard up. I've got to make sure to not be in intimate relationships because that could hurt me. So I curve inward and I keep all of you out. This is the shape of sin. But the good news is <laughs> that when, when we want to follow Jesus, the first thing that we have to do is uncurl ourselves. When we want to look upon Jesus, we have to stop looking at ourselves. This is the act of turning towards Jesus. This is the first step of salvation is to stop looking at me as the problem to be the solution and to turn my eyes instead towards Jesus. And, and then Jesus does begin to heal us. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you kind of how Jesus describes um, sin and righteousness. I'm going to read so much Bible to you today. First of all, because I'm kind of tired and we're going to let the Bible preach, but also because they're so much smarter than I am. Remember this, um, we use these verses a lot to talk about judging others, but I'm going to look at it a little bit differently today. So Jesus in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, he, he's talking about um, judging others. So listen, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, oh, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly the speck out of your brother's eye. We're going to use this to help us imagine pictures, layers of sin and righteousness. When we first start following Jesus, there's some like really immediate changes that he makes to our lives. I want you to think about some of the first things that God asked you to give up when you decided to follow him. And since I'm up here and leaders go first, I'll tell you some of mine. And I've talked to you guys about this before, but a really a really tight hold of sin in my life was lying and dishonesty. I'm clever. I'm good with words. I can be quite charming. And it was really easy, even as a really little girl, to realize I could lie to get out of anything and to get into anything. It was so easy. I couldn't believe how dumb people were. <laughs> Turns out they were just honest. My husband can't lie to save his life, and it always amazes me, like, so easy. That was one of the first things that Jesus said, like, when I really turned my life towards the Lord later in my teen years, and then even into my 20s, God had to ask me, are you going to be done not telling the truth? That was, a, that was big for me. This has continued to, like, narrow. This was, that was a log that, that had to get, like, lodged out of my head, essentially. Just <laughs> popped right out. There was some bleeding, for sure. But now as I continue to follow Jesus, it's not like that doesn't come up for me. There's still these little slivers of tendencies that have followed me from that big sin. 
like little bits of dishonesty. For instance, I know, what am I doing? I'm too tired to preach. I'm going to be too honest. A lot of people in my life have my phone on um, like a tr as a tracking device so that when they say, have you left yet? <laughs> they know if I've left yet. So if I say, oh, I think I'll be there in five minutes, my little sister will text me and say, you will be here in 20 minutes. I am looking at where you are in the city. And it's had to teach me, it's not like I'm trying to lie, what, but what I want to do is make them feel better about how long it's going to take me to get there. It's switched a little bit, right? Like my motives have switched, but there's still something in me, some self-protective act that is still curving me inward. And so God is so kind and Jesus is so kind to continue to pull those slivers out of my life. So that's one way to think about sin and righteousness. The way that Jesus talks about it is like there's these big things that he's going to ask us for right away to follow him. But even as we continue down our journey with him, he's not going to leave us alone to let those things fester or grow again. He'll keep taking the small things that are not serving us well and that are turning us inward upon ourselves. But here's the thing. No matter how much we want to do what's good, it continues to be hard to always do what's good. Oh, yes? Come on, give me an amen. Am I the only one? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, there's a really famous passage where Paul talks about this. You know, and Paul was a law follower. Paul was like tip-top Jew. He knew all the right things to do. He taught all the right things to do. He's brilliant. But then he gives us this really beautiful picture of his internal struggle. Okay, this is um, Romans 7 and 8. Yeah, I'm reading two chapters of the Bible, so settle in. So the trouble is not with the law, for it's spiritual and good. The trouble's with me, because I'm all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, because I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows me that I agree that the law is good. I want you to sit with that for just a minute. If we even recognize that the thing that we're doing is not something we want to do, it means we agree that God's law is good. What a beautiful first step. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. This is still Paul. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. What a miserable person I am who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Thank God, because the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. But listen to this. There's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. 
And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weaknesses of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies that we have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature. We follow the spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit they think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. The sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never obeyed God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can't please God. But guess what? You're not controlled by your sinful nature. You're controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. And the Spirit of God, the same one who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he's going to give you your mortal bodies this same spirit living within you. So listen, brothers and sisters, you don't have any obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. If you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit, and listen for the same phrase from John, all who live by the Spirit, are children of God. You haven't received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children, and now we call him Abba, Father. Thank Okay. First of all, thank you, Lord, that you've preserved this scripture, because that's all we need. I should just sit down. But I have a little more scripture for you. <laughs> what Paul is saying is we have freedom. Yes, we still have sinful natures. Yes, we still have mortal bodies that continue to defy our best efforts. But we are free. I'm going to um, read from James chapter 2, 18 through 26. If you're at all familiar with the New Testament, you know that James is kind of a pain in the neck. <laughs> if you read his book, he's, he's just like kind of harsh, and he has really high expectations. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I try to imagine myself in a room with James. Not enough hugs in the world. 
could soften his arguments, but he's right. We have to ask ourselves, what, is, what does it look like? How do we know if we're turning from our sinful nature? How do we know if we're winning the war in our minds? And James says, okay, well, someone may argue some have faith and others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith because you believe that there's one God. Good for you. (laughs) My gosh, he's so sarcastic. Even the demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? His faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we're shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. you got to love a guy who can start with Abraham and end with a prostitute. And weave the same story through both. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're the father of the Israelites or if you are a prostitute who hides some men on your roof. It does not, it does not say, and then, and then Rehab turned her life around and was never a prostitute again. We don't know that about most of the stories that Jesus told about people. What we see James saying here is that What we do says what we believe. What we believe doesn't decide who we are and and, uh, if we're righteous. (laughs) Because who cares? You can say whatever you want about what you believe. When you enter into a marriage, it doesn't matter if the person standing at the altar says, I will lay down my life for you and I love you. And then never does it. This, this wasn't the truth of the relationship. This was a declaration. The truth of the relationship is the road in front of them, the long road in front of them. Same with a friendship. I can tell my friends, I love you. I'll be there for you anytime, and then I don't return their texts, or I, I don't go and help them. I can say whatever I want about what I believe. What I do says what I believe. There is no way around that. Our actions declare our faith, and our faith drives our actions. So how can we know if we're becoming spiritually mature? How can we know when God has begun to pull the logs out of our eyes, when he's looking for splinters, when he's asking us to give over the parts of ourselves that continue to hurt us and hurt the people around us? I have three things for us to think about. It's that next slide. How can we know if we're becoming spiritually mature? First, a desire for the Father. Do we want to be with God? Do we want to call out, Abba, Father? This shows spiritual maturity because it means that we're not 
curving in. We're not calling our own name. We've begun to straighten up and to look towards the one who calls our name. And we're not going to God for things, and we're not going to the Father with just complaints and requests. Those are part of a relationship. But part of spiritual maturity is this deep desire that begins to build in us to be with the Father. And how do we know that that's spiritual maturity? Because what did we see Jesus always start with? The Father. He said, you think I'm doing all these great things? Guess what? I'm just doing what the Father tells me to do. Even Jesus doesn't take it upon himself to be like, I am pretty good at being a savior. I'm listening to the Father, and I'm doing what the Father told me to do. Spiritual maturity is turning towards the Father. Spiritual maturity is going to show up when we become to be tender to repentance. Because we're not afraid anymore of the log in our eye. And we're not trying to act like everybody around us doesn't see it anyways. We can be tender to repentance once we have experienced the other side of repentance, which is healing and freedom. We've got to taste it to want more of it. And the more that we repent, which, remember that definition that we use for repentance, which is asking God to change the way we think about the way we think. Being tender to that means if I'm in an argument with you, I'm getting faster at thinking, you know, there might be something that God's trying to change in me instead of being quick to think, I wonder how I could help God change you. Repentance, this is important. Repentance is the holy look inward because you don't stay there. Repentance is us turning and saying, God is doing a work in me. But instead of staying there and being ashamed, hiding, angry, we look and then who do we look to next? Ah, oh, the Father. Lord, I feel I I know that you're asking me to change something here. Something doesn't feel right. I'm going to look at you for what you'd like me to do next. Spiritual maturity comes in people who are faster to recognize when God's asking to them to repent and can celebrate the freedom that comes from repentance. We don't have a spirit of fear anymore. We have a spirit of freedom. And in that spirit of freedom, spiritual maturity is going to look like commitment to each other. Because I don't have to take care of me. I know that the Father is taking care of me. And I don't have to feel like I have to care for all of your needs, which is kind of why we hide from each other, because you got a lot of needs, and I've got a lot of needs, and we are exhausting people. Humans are exhausting. I'm an extrovert, and I still find humans kind of exhausting. You poor introverts, how do you get out of the house sometimes? People are hard. But spiritual maturity is this freedom to trust the Father with you and with me. And then we can be committed to each other because we don't feel like we have to fix each other. We don't feel like we have to fill each other's needs. We can trust that God is doing that for us and for them. So that is a sign of spiritual maturity. That's a sign of the logs getting taken away from us, the splinters getting taken away from us because I'm not afraid of you. 
I'm not afraid of what you can do to me. I'm not afraid of what you can take from me. This doesn't mean we don't have healthy boundaries with each other, but it means that we let the Father set the boundaries, not our fear. Okay. None of this can be true. This, this is the last thing we're going to think about, and then I'm going to give you some pictures to look at. Um, none of this can happen unless we recover a sense of eternity. We must recover our sense of eternity in order to build our understanding of freedom. Until we stop believing this trick of the devil that says, because we make the clocks, we make the hours, we will not taste eternity on this side of heaven. We must expand our sense of eternity if we want to take hold of the freedom that Jesus' death and resurrection won for us. Imagine eternity. This mental stacking of time upon time upon time gives us the gift of sight, a vision for the distance of forever and the breadth of an infinite and loving Father. And in that vision, we see ourselves as God sees us, as freed people. And gifted with the knowledge of eternity and freed from the constraints of time, we start to actually believe that it's not our pace that keeps the world on its axis. It's not our machinations that bring each other to repentance. It's not us that brings heaven to earth and sets things right. It's Yahweh, ancient of days, God who even as we're sitting in this air-conditioned room with a roof over our heads, in the constraints of a town and a city and a country and even a planet, it is God who's breathing new universes into existence right now. God is time. That's eternity. God is time. And it's our birthright as children of the living God, to stop sinning and to continue in him, which fills us with courage and gives us confidence to sit at the place that the Father has set with him at his table. We get to feast in the goodness of the king. John tells us, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And how do we know if we've been born of him? How do we know if we are a people as a collective, as a whole, and as individuals who do what is right? John says it this simply. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who doesn't do what is right is not a child of God. Anyone who does not love his brother. The core of sin is the brokenness of love. And a vision for eternity. And a vision for a God who will set things right. And a vision for a God who continues to set things right in us. Gives us the freedom to love. And it is stepping into the light of love and learning to love more and learning to love better that takes us away from the darkness and turns us towards the light.
I'm going to show you some pictures. You guys know I'm just like so obsessed with that James Webb telescope. How many times have I used it up here? <laughs> Man, it's going to make me cry. Um, we get the privilege of being alive in 2023. <laughs> we don't just get to see the stars that are on our planet. We get to see galaxies being formed. These are new galaxies being birthed. We're the first people in history who get a glimpse of eternity. And if this doesn't shrink us and give us perspective, I don't know what can. So I'm, I'm just going to leave this up here. And we're going to have the band come up. And during communion... I'm going to ask you to consider eternity. And in that vision, ask the Lord, surprise me, God. Bring to mind the things that you have to change in me. Maybe it's a log in your own eye. Maybe it's a splinter, a little thing that you have just felt like, it doesn't hurt that bad. Why should I give it to God? And ask the Lord what it is and give it to him in freedom. Not because he's demanding it. Not because he needs it. This is what God's doing as we're sitting here. <laughs> give it to him because it's going to give you freedom. The thing that God has in exchange for you is freedom. And in that freedom, a greater love than we could ever begin to imagine. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection, where you can fill out the connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.